Hi, everyone, and welcome to Wallet Street, um, the pod version. I did this a little bit last year and restarting it this year, um, and I'm really excited to start off with, I think, a very apropos topic um, this week. So um, just a reminder, a disclaimer that none of the content on this uh, pod is considered um, legal, accounting, financial, or investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor, and neither is my guest. Um, so now that we have that out of the way, the topic for today is crypto and its use cases in emerging markets and markets around the world. Um, my guest today is Andre, who is a friend that I've known now for 10 years, which is crazy. Um, and we're going to be talking about crypto around the world and how um, people are using it outside of maybe the US, which is generally um, probably where my point of view has uh, been primarily from. So Andre, I'll let you maybe introduce yourself and we can talk a bit, a bit uh, uh, we can talk a bit about how we met as well, but um, wanted to let you start start off. Yeah, thanks Charlotte. Um, so I'm Andre Coutinho, I'm currently uh, working in crypto as director of operations for MoonPay. Uh, my background is I'm an engineer by trade, uh, graduated in France from uh, Ecole Polytechnique, but actually not where I met Charlotte, so more on that to come. Um, then I did most of my career in consulting for BCG in a variety of different topics, uh, very kind of like generalist consulting. Then I um, started to pivot towards fintech, um, worked a year at MasterCard, building their consulting business here in Western Europe. Then about 2020, I caught the crypto bug and um, started to really look into how I could shift my career into that. And through a combination of perseverance and luck, I uh, managed to find a good opportunity at MoonPay, which is where I am today. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so we have originally, I guess, met 10 years ago. I went to Brazil um, for a Fulbright, and I didn't really know anyone uh, at all and had never been there. So I had reached out to a family or a, a kind of distant cousin in my family who um, I heard through word of mouth had friends in Brazil or had visited before. <laughs> and I begged her to like, I asked her if she knew anyone or like what I would be doing there. Um, and she put me in touch with your family. Um, and so when I showed up in Rio, um, right after I landed, I think you guys kind of took me around and showed me the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. I think that that was in 2012, right? 2012, about, 2012. yeah, exactly like 10 years ago, um, which is wild. So, but uh, I always have very fond memories of my time there and of meeting your family who took me in. Um, and we've kind of stayed in touch ever since here and there. Um, and uh, I know you've traveled and been in the US and we've seen each other a few times since then, but um, haven't really, I think, spoken in a few years or a couple of years. So I'm excited that you also joined into the crypto um, <laughs> mania, I guess, and uh, we can connect on that. Um, yeah, for sure. I think these are um, always some um, some coincidences that end up shaping your life. Like I, um, I'm a very big believer in just being open to new opportunities and meeting people and, you know, good things tend to come out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think also like um, 
it's good not to uh, drop the ball on people you know through life and then you forget about them because they moved to a completely different place. So yeah, um, trying to get back here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you had told me when we were 10 years ago in Rio that we would be sitting here 10 years from now talking about crypto on a podcast, I would have thought you were crazy. <laughs> I would never have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm living in Seattle and you're in Europe. Like also never would have guessed <laughs> that. So um, anyways, so let's um, maybe move into starting some questions about how you first got into crypto and kind of your intro into the industry. I know you mentioned you started learning about it in 2020, but I guess what were your initial thoughts about it? Um, were you kind of skeptical at first? Um, how did you hear about it? Did you have friends in it? Or how did you kind of get into, dip your toe? Yeah, so for me, I think um, I had several exposures to crypto. And several times I said no, until the final one where I got in. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think it was in 2010, a friend of mine, one of the smartest guys I've ever known, um, was big in computer science, told me in college that I should get into Bitcoin. And I was like, yeah, first of all, I don't have any money. Second of all, you're crazy. Like <laughs> crypto money, like digital money, that doesn't make any sense. Everyone's just going to go and take my money away. So yeah, no, pass. Um, then I think 2016, the same friend of mine said, you know, if you thought that Bitcoin thing was crazy, now go on to this Ethereum thing because things are going to get really crazy from now on. Uh, and I also said, yeah, I just had gotten back from my MBA, had a lot of that. I'm not going to go into invest in anything for now. Um, so that was strike two. Then came the by the way, is this friend now like very rich and like not <laughs> like living out yeah, of that? I mean, he, he seems very smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he um, he won like several math Olympiads uh, before college, then during college. Then he did trading for UBS for a couple of years. Then he opened his own startup with his own money. So like no VC money oh, wow. uh, okay. on like AI and education, then sold that to a massive um, like corporate education company in Brazil. And I can only imagine the multiplier he got since he has zero VC money, all money was his. And now he just does VC things uh, for the startup um, environment. Good for him, good for him. Sorry, <laughs> keep yeah, going. Yeah. So yeah, maybe not all his money comes from crypto, uh, but you know, that definitely could have helped. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, then the last time, was actually my wife, you know, uh, had really like started to learn a lot about Bitcoin and be super interested. She had a friend who was a very big Bitcoiner and she told me we are investing and we are getting into this and it's not up for discussion. So she then started to, like she says, orange pill me to Bitcoin. <laughs> um, yeah. And then it just grew from there. Like, I think, um, like I always say that people overstate the power of just creating a wallet to someone and sending them like $10 worth of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then people start paying attention. And yeah. like, that's a very easy way of on-ramp people to crypto. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so I guess now that you've moved into 
uh, like learning more about it, trading or using it yourself, trading it yourself. Um, I guess, what are the use cases that you find most interesting? And in particular, I think what's great is your perspective, having lived, spent a lot of time in, in the US, in Europe, and also obviously you're from Brazil. So you know that financial system as well. So kind of curious how you see um, crypto playing a role in those different environments. Yeah, so to me, I see, um, a couple of things, right? So the, the easiest and the simplest one, which is something I suffered uh, because like you said, I moved three times. So I lived in Europe, I lived in the US and I lived in Brazil. And every time I moved, my finances took a hit between 10, 20, 30% because moving money across borders, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. And everyone takes a cut in the middle of the way. So um, if you feel that you know gas prices on Ethereum at like 96, 100, 300 gui are expensive, Take a look at how much your regular um, like exchange house would charge you or your bank would charge you to do a wire mm -hmm. internationally. And I imagine you probably suffer that as well, Charlotte, if you're trying to send money back home or receive money from your family and friends. It's, it's a mess. Yep, absolutely. So that's a very easy one for crypto to solve mm -hmm. because it's countryless, it's borderless. So mm -hmm. you can open an account, you can use any, you can open in a wallet, like a non-custodial wallet anywhere in the world. And you can send money to that and take money out of that to anywhere in the world. And the only thing you pay is the local transfer fees and the network fee on crypto. So that's very, very simple um, and a very, um, let's say, publicized use case, like most notoriously with um, Bitcoin in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. um, then the second thing to me is something that I lived in Brazil, which was um, defense against a massive currency devaluation. Mm -hmm. So most countries don't allow you to have bank accounts in different currencies. So if you live in the US, you can't go and say, hey, I want to open a bank account in euros. Most banks would not allow you to do that. Um, and similar thing in Brazil, if you want to have dollar exposure, um, you have to buy like a dollar fund, which is basically a money market fund that operates the effects market and gives you exposure to dollars. And that's as much as what you can get. But, you know, that's really bad because then you only have dollars, but you don't invest them. So you are losing to the dollar inflation. You know, so you may that, Sorry, just to clarify, does that work? So you buy and re-ice the, the fund and your re-ice just tracks the, that fund? Okay. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, Itaú or um, the main banks in Brazil, you have, they call like an FX market or a dollar market fund. Mm -hmm. So basically you give them your AIs, they go to like money market funds in the US and then just buy like huge positions and get a margin out of that. Got it. Okay. So basically you're tracking the dollar, but you're not doing anything with your dollars, right? I mean, yeah. your dollars are losing to inflation every year. Uh, and, you know, the flip side of that is at any time, you still have AIs because mm -hmm. you have a share of a fund that tracks dollars. So if there's a if there's a massive devaluation in AIs, you can get more money, but at the end of the day, you still have AIs. You don't have dollars. And if and, you want to yeah. convert to dollars eventually, then again, it's the same problem of you're probably going to lose a little bit on the exchange. Oh, it's even worse actually because um, that's a money market fund, so you pay capital income tax when the dollar uh, appreciates versus the AIs. So you have to pay taxes to the IRS 
Uh, and then when you do want to convert AIs to dollars, then you have to pay the conversion taxes and fees of the traditional money system. So it's some exposure, but your, let's say, net exposure is really diminished because you have mm -hmm. to pay taxes on, on all movements. Mm -hmm. And you know, with crypto, you don't have to do any of that. You can just buy a stable coin in your favorite you know, centralized or decentralized market then you can put it to earn interest through yields, through any provider you want, you know, from the, let's say, MakerDAO, Aave, uh, Compound, the decentralized ones, all the way to Celsius, BlockFi, you know, mm -hmm. Coinbase, Binance, all the centralized ones, you can earn yield. And, you know, that at least allows you to beat inflation. So you have dollars and you have dollars that are making money for you. And since the first point I've mentioned that crypto allows you to move money cross borders. Um, if at any point in time you want to cash out those that crypto in dollars, you can do so. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's much more powerful um, than any other way of protecting your money. And I say that I've suffered that because when I wanted to go to the U.S. to do my MBA, I started planning for that. And I started saving money in dollars. And the only way I could do that at the time was to pay a large amount of fees to hire a private banker to open a bank account for me in like the Cayman Islands, because that was the only way I could get a dollar bank account. And then I could send dollars there and have a reserve in dollars. And lo and behold, in the middle of my MBA, the real crashed and was worth 50% less than when I was saving to the MBA. So, you know, you, Charlotte, chose a very bad time because when you came, the real was booming. If you had come to Brazil three years later, your money and dollars would be more, like your Fulbright scholarship would be so much more powerful in terms yeah. of money you'd have. <laughs> yep. But, you know, like I can only imagine how it was for the people who live, who are living in Brazil and then see their purchasing power drop by 50%, uh, like in four months, five months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a shock that there's not a lot of ways you can protect yourself against and crypto allows you to do that. Yeah, and I think it's important reminder because I think a lot of us who have lived mostly in the US or even in Europe where the currency has remained stable, you know, whether it's euros or dollars have not really faced this pain point day to day. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess I can't say what it's like to lose that quickly um, the erosion of your, of your purchasing power. But that's a, a common issue that a lot of people face through, around the world. Um, I mean, not just in Brazil. Um, and it can happen really quickly um, and obviously have a huge impact um, on, on you. Uh, and I think we're seeing that, I mean, not only in the, in the case of maybe inflation or devaluation, but also um, in terms of other macro instability like war, which is what we're seeing with Ukraine and, and Russia right now. Yeah, exactly. And I feel, you know, um, in certain aspects, it's a little bit more understandable if you have, if you are from an emerging market that is dominated by commodities, for instance, say, you know, like from the Middle East with oil or um, some African countries or South American countries with um, like iron ore or copper or diamonds or other stuff like that. When that, if that's most of your country and that commodity goes down, then you understand that your currency goes down too. But I imagine that it must be so much more frustrating when you know someone in power decides to do something and then like 
two days later, you see your currency devaluated by 60%, like was the case with the Russian ruble, right? It was, I think, 60 or 80% devaluation in 10 days or something insane. So, you know, if people had crypto reserves in Russia, they could have been a little bit more prepared um, to face that, right? Because right now, I think right now the rubble has recovered, but for a couple of days, it was very uncertain whether that would remain, you know, super bad or not. And particularly in, in places where I have a little bit more of authoritarian governments, you can't really control what the leader of your government does. And you just have to face the consequences. Exactly. I think this is where the democratization of finance as a concept is so powerful for crypto because it allows a regular person who doesn't really have any influence or power on what the country's economic policy or political policies are to retain um, their individual economic value, where um, if you're entirely reliant on, you know, what your leader is doing that given day or month, if, especially if you don't agree with it, and it impacts your economics negatively, um, that's, I mean, you lose all, all any kind of power or um, autonomy. So I think that's what makes crypto interesting is it allows people to retain some sort of freedom or more mobility, economic mobility um, in spite of what the country is doing. And I think the flip side of that is, you know, that also allows for nefarious actors to do what they want to do in spite of maybe what the government's trying to control um, or, or regulate. Uh, so there are like two sides to the coin, but I think that for me, I see, and I, I know that's a critique of crypto that comes up a lot is that bad actors can use it to, to move assets without having to follow certain, um, you know, regulatory restrictions. But I think the, the positive side of it so much outweighs the negative use cases um, in my mind. Yeah, and of course, talking to me, you're preaching to the choir, but um, I feel like that the, the real impact that crypto may have um, and, and at a government level, if everyone is using it, is that then your central bank, particularly in, in smaller countries, may not have full control of the currency. Mm -hmm. right? So a lot in the media last year was about El Salvador and people were saying, oh, they're crazy that they accepted Bitcoin as like legal tender. But if you looked into that, they didn't have a proper currency to begin with. They were already um, only using dollars as their currency. So it's not as if their central bank would lose power because they had already relegated that power to a new, another country. Now they are, let's say, relegating some of the currency power to someone that's not a country, which may be better or worse. But if you feel about, if you're talking about like monetary policy and the role of government, um, it's kind of scary for governments if you think about that. Well, what happens if I cannot control monetary policy anymore because people can just opt out of my currency and use whatever crypto they want? Well, I think that's exactly what I've, my, my kind of observation of what's happening in China and China restricted, um, you know, any kind of crypto mining or, or cryptocurrency is in my mind, they don't want people being able to operate outside of the government sanctioned um, currency and they're trying to build uh, their own sovereign digital currency. So I'm, I'm curious actually what your take is on that when countries try to build their own sovereign version of, um, of a crypto coin, but really it's just a digital form of what's already there today. 
I, I don't know yeah. that it. To me, like true I find in general CBDCs uh, very, very, very scary uh, because crypto is based on blockchain transparency. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that actually it's really bad for like bad actors or people to try to launder money through crypto because you have the full traceability of all the different things that's happening. Yep. And when I think about like today in the traditional monetary system, the only people who actually see what I, Andre, am purchasing and they can associate with my name is the bank, if I'm using cards is the, or like whatever transfer is my bank. And my credit card company, mm -hmm. and the government cannot see that because in you know most democracies, for the government to see my financial records, they need to have a court order that allows them then to do that. So they have to prove a motive to see my financial transactions. If you have CBDCs, well, now I have a wallet associated with my name, and whenever I buy a cup of coffee, it's on the blockchain for everyone to see that I bought a cup of coffee. And if you pair that with a country like China, which already has that um, social credit mechanism, well, guess what? Now the government can control what, uh, what you buy and they can say, well, you know, Charlotte, you're spending not enough money on Chinese companies and you're spending way too much money on, let's say, I don't know, Zara clothes. So do spend more money on- That is Chinese true, I, I do spend too much money on Zara. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're they not say, wrong. spend more money. <laughs> Like spend more money in Chinese shops or you know, next time you got to go for a bank license or bank application, your loan is going to get rejected or, you know, government can act, can act on that at an individual level and not just at a, let's say, anonymized or um, central level. So that's why I'm pretty much like scared about CBDCs unless, you know, they have a built-in privacy mechanism like the privacy chains that all governments hate you know, like Secret or Monero or Tornado Cash um, that most governments hate because those are mixers and you cannot see the transactions that are happening there. So <clears throat> two points that I just thought of that while you were talking. One is I, um, I really never thought about it that way. I mean, where the government really will have full ability to see what you're doing with your, with your funds and be able to trace that. And what can they, if, if you're in a place where there's, um, not a de democratic government or even if you're if you are in a democracy you know you never know how the politics will change um, what kind of power that gives uh, the central state um, so that's one that kind of is blowing my mind but the other one that um, you bring up that's interesting is this this point of oh crypto is dangerous for because you know nefarious actors can transact with it and we don't know who's doing what and I always people always say that to me as a reason to dislike crypto and my response is always to your point like it's on a ledger like that's the whole point is there's traceability and yes you might not know who's behind the wallet um, but or the wallet ID but like you can trace all the transactions. That's the entire point. And look at what cash does today. I mean, look at how many people use US dollars in cash as a way to launder money. I mean, there's zero traceability there if you're just you know, exchanging dollar bills. So um, I always find that to be a really, um, I don't even know what the word is, like maybe uninformed point about why to dislike crypto um, because it's just not true. <laughs> Yeah, I think what people see is that they see the 
pseudonym nature of crypto. So your interaction with the blockchain is based on your wallet address. Mm -hmm. And your wallet address is anonymous unless you have a provider that does KYC on you. And then at that point, that provider has information. But, you know, like the, the, the thing which is amazing is like the fraud prevention uh, companies out there, the, you know, TRM, chain analysis and all those, they cooperate so much with law enforcement that I believe that like law enforcement secretly loves crypto. They just cannot say it out loud because of like people's impressions. And the flip side that I always think about is, you know, how many criminal activities we've seen in the news where they actually caught the money from the criminals. If you think about that, um, that um, like crazy crypto couple uh, that had done the Bitfinex hack, they were caught by the FBI and also by like block explorers and people trying to find out where the money went to. Uh, and they recovered most of the Bitcoins that they had stolen, right? So I don't see a lot of times when law enforcement outside of crypto can actually recover like massive amounts of stolen funds because, you know, you do cash and the system is opaque and you create a billion shell companies in um, like fiscal paradises and that's it. Like no one yeah. can find out at the end what that is. Exactly. I mean... Or you just, you know, hoard it in your house and, and under your mattress, and then you use it to, to pay for things. And no one knows, I mean, no one knows where that went, um, really. So I think that's um, what's always an interesting point that I think people don't quite, or maybe is not um, as widely talked about as it should be. Um, but one of the other um, things I wanted to talk about is so some of the some countries have taken a stance like India recently is starting a 30% tax on crypto transactions and I'm curious what's your thought on how governments are going to try different ways to regulate crypto transactions because I think some like China we've seen is is kind of completely um, prohibiting it India it seems like is going through a taxation route or like heavily taxing it um, others maybe are more friendly towards um, crypto, like El Salvador is clearly, mm -hmm. obviously very pro, um, at least Bitcoin. Um, so curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so to me, I think there are, um, so first of all, I, I'm very bullish on the Indian news because mm -hmm. before that they had, the answer was ban crypto. So at least now it is regulate crypto. And it's, um, you know, and a, a side note of that, it's exactly the same reason why, you know, I always, I also felt that when BlockFi got fined $100 million by the SEC, that was also a very good news because they could have just been shut down. So, you know, that means that the regulator now accepts what you're doing. So when they say, oh, crypto transactions are taxed at 30%, that's a regulator saying that crypto transactions are good, they are approved, they are legal, everything is good with them, and hence we are taxing them. So like on crypto taxation by itself, um, I feel there are two angles at this that, that like governments can look at it. So one is you assume that most crypto transactions are for speculation and hence investments. So you treat them as a capital gain tax mm -hmm. mechanism, and then you may you know, charge more or less depending on what is the mechanism for the country. Mm -hmm. um, of course, what that does is then that um, prevents let's say low, like that prevents me from going to the bar with you, Charlotte, and then 
like sending you $10 in crypto <laughs> because that would mean that I would get taxed. So another view of doing that is thinking about, well, if people are going to use crypto to pay for stuff, then we should put, say, a sales tax or a VAT tax on crypto transactions. Um, because otherwise people can just buy stuff with crypto and never pay taxes on them for every purchase. It's like you, it's like when you um, go to the bar and you buy a drink with cash. If you don't ask for a receipt, they won't make a receipt for you. Right? I think that's in some, not everywhere, but in some countries, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and, and I've seen that a lot that. in the U.S. Like that happens a lot in the U.S. for me, at least. Like you go to a cash bar and then unless you ask for a receipt, they don't give you a receipt, right? Um, so, you know, when they think about that with crypto, they think, well, now it's not just cash because, you know, if I were to a restaurant and I paid a fancy restaurant like $10,000 with cash, everyone would find that very strange. You know, so I could pay that with crypto and then just like scan a QR code and that's done. Um, so then there's another logic, and this is more, I guess, with NFTs as well, uh, since NFTs are digital goods, that you should have a way to collect and pay sales tax on NFTs. Um, but, you know, that's also very that. weird. Um, and because you think, well, but then if what if I buy NFTs is speculation because I want to, you know, get the new trendy NFT and I buy them now and I sell them later for a profit then you're favoring one class of assets versus others. Because if I do that with Bitcoin, I have to pay capital gains tax. If I do that with NFTs, now I just have to pay sales tax or VAT mm -hmm. in, in Europe and other countries. So it's a very difficult theme to me. Um, but I think something that governments need to fix because that will just be a lot of money that aren't being paid. I know now it's tax season in the US and every provider has, you know, Here's how we can help you pay your taxes on crypto. Um, what I used to so work maybe, on. I worked on a software that did that back yeah. prior years. But sorry, go ahead. And did it work? I mean, is there like regulatory clarity in the US that people know what yeah. they have to pay and how they have to pay it? Or is it there's still... Some, eh. there's, there's some regulatory clarity and some not. So some use cases are not clear. But what's clear is you have at the, um, at the most basic you are supposed to be paying taxes on crypto, which I don't think people realized um, a few years back. And the IRS has been very clear about um, sending letters to people that they know are not uh, accurately reporting their gains on crypto and paying the appropriate capital gains tax. Yeah, and you know, to me, the, the flip side of that, which is amazing is that, well, crypto, and if you think about particularly DeFi, um, is all about, combining and redoing financial primitives. So if you take most tax codes, when you have and you sell something, that's the moment where you pay taxes on them. Mm -hmm. um, so when you convert your crypto to fiat or when you sell your Bitcoin to stable coins or at some point somewhere, that's when you pay taxes. And so this, the crypto solution to do that is, well, what happens if you never sell? So instead of selling your crypto, you take a loan against your crypto mm -hmm. and crypto loans have very low interest rates. Um, so some places even offer you zero API or some crazier DJing strategies can give you negative interest rate loans where your loan pays itself out. Wow. Um, and then you don't pay taxes ever because you never sell. You only mm -hmm. take loans. So there is kind of like that battle where 
even the regulators are are not moving because they can't they can't figure out where to tax crypto yet. And crypto is already thinking, oh, you want to tax us? Fine. People are just going to take loans at 1% APY and that's it, uh-huh. you know, and they're never going to get taxed. So there's a lot of strategies going around there, like um, on taxing versus not taxing versus using the composability of DeFi to just never have to pay taxes. Wow. That's, yeah, I don't know that I'm that sophisticated of a financial person to understand how to how to navigate that. But um, it does seem to me that one of the fundamental issues with taxation is um, like, is this an asset or is it a currency or what what is it? And there's kind of back and forth around because you don't tax just for holding dollars. You, there's no tax on that, right? It's when you use the dollar to buy something. Um, so I think the government is still, a lot of governments are still trying to figure out how that is. Is it both? Is it one or the other? Um, and what that means, uh, for, for regulation. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, then there becomes those things where there's no one crypto asset, right? Because then you're saying, well, Bitcoin is not the same as a stable coin, like USDC or USDT, and that's not the same as an NFT. So at the end of, and and maybe there are gonna be like new hybrid weird tokens tomorrow that none of us had dreamt about, but people are building out there. And, you know, it's it's always kind of like a race against time. And to me, the the risk there is always that, you know, um, imagine that some country does a regulation that it works like this. At every wallet transaction, you need to register that transaction with the IRS and pay some tax on it. Like even if it's super small, even if it's like you know 1% or 0.1%, the burden to just send all those transactions would be insane. Because imagine like every, it's like you put a tax on every single bank transaction that people do, including credit cards. Yeah. That would be, I mean, very unwieldy. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and then there's all, a lot of those like classic, um, if you take, if you ever take like a macro econ class or like economic policy class about um, like, why do you tax? Because ideally every tax regime you do has a stronger impact on the people who make more money than on the people who make less money, right? It's the same, it's like that classic logic where you should always have income tax being high with very high brackets and VAT being low mm-hmm. because the people who make the last money, they buy more things. So if your VAT is high, their tax share is much more on the VAT of the things they buy. Mm-hmm. So on the sales tax than on the income tax because they have the lowest income bracket. Yep. Whereas when you have very rich people, then it's the other way around, right? They mm-hmm. should pay mostly income tax because the VAT for that level of income is very minor. Yeah. One um, other use case I did want to talk about is before we end is um, around Ukraine and what's going on in Russia, um, in Russia and Ukraine. I know we talked about it a bit, but I did want to mention I was um, last week I wrote about the donations, the crypto donations um, that are going to Ukraine to raise money for the war. Um, and what I think is fascinating is how quickly, I mean, it's proven exactly what you've talked about, how quickly and easy it can be to send money cross borders. 
um, you know, if you're, for example, I imagine if you're someone who's has family there and you need to get them money fast, um, you know, going through the traditional bank system is not going to probably do it. Not only is it take usually a few days to get wires to go through, but um, also, I mean, if you're on the receiving end, you got to go to the bank to take that money out. And if you have long bank lines or their bank runs, um, you might really be like out of luck. Uh, to, to get cash out or if the, you know, for whatever reason, electronic payment systems are down or there's issues um, that can also be a problem. So I think moving crypto, I mean, we've seen, I think I last number I saw was over hundred million got raised. I don't know if that number has gone up since then, but um, in crypto to Ukraine, uh, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, so all the doubters, I know there's a lot of people who doubt the power of crypto, but I think this is one that shows how well it's worked. Yeah, and I am 100% in agreement with that. And you know, if you think about like in the US, a lot of charities run through churches. So imagine you go to church on Sunday, someone passes a little bit like collection jar and you put a money, like your money there. Like how long would that, like you putting your money physically in a collection jar takes to get to whatever cause you're supporting at the end, particularly if that's somewhere else or in the world. So, you know, we got to put that money there. Then the person collects the money, puts that money on a bank. Then the bank sends a wire to the other bank. Then the other bank has to have someone else on that end to get the money. And then it goes to the crack people. Mm-hmm. That could take months, if not weeks. And, you know, maybe by that time, the people you want to help are moved, have moved or have other difficulties or other issues. So the speed is really amazing. Yeah. Um, and of course, some people will say, oh, but there are hackers, there are people who are impersonating like the Ukraine DAO or other things to get money. Yeah, but you have that with everything, right? You can never stop, truly stop bad actors. They're just going to invent new ways of trying to rob people. That's true. Um, so I uh, had a few additional questions. I was curious where you read or listen or you get most of your information for crypto. Um, what do you like to to use to keep up to date? So, no, like you know very well, crypto moves at the speed of light. So I always like to say that uh, three months in crypto equates one year in normal business. Yep. Um, so I tend to have information that is the, as fast as possible. So I use a lot of, of Twitter. So mm-hmm. crypto Twitter, and that is like my daily consumption. Um, then you have, of course, you have to filter the memes. Um, of the actual news, but sometimes the memes are the news. So that's also nice. Um, then I use a lot, um, another podcast uh, called Bankless. That's really good. Um, they have like amazing interviews with top people in the market. Then um, there's an investment house or analysis house that I really like called Masari. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a billion reports, like hundreds of pages long. So. You have really to find something you're really interested in because otherwise it takes a lot of time. Um, yeah, and then sometimes I go to Discord as well, but you have to really watch out because there's a lot of scams. So as a parenthesis, if you have the CAPTCHA Discord bot, uh, do revoke that approval because they use that to conduct scams and phishing attacks and they just stole two board apes uh, from people. Mm-hmm. because of using that bot. So Discord is a bit tricky. Uh, never approve, never connect, never DM. 
uh, but yeah, sometimes they have cool things there as well. And um, lastly, what's, you know, I think for those of us who have worked in the industry, for people who are not, who don't know it very well, we always get questions from friends. Um, so what's the most current question that you get from, I guess, friends that are not fully in, uh, into crypto yet, but are curious about it? So to me, it's always like about the trending coin. So like whatever it is, it's Shiba, Bitcoin, uh, Dogecoin or whatever. They always ask whether it's a pyramid scheme or whether they can make a lot of money out of it. And, you know, what do you say? I, well, I say that one of the tenets of crypto is D-Y-O-R, do your own research. So don't believe what people tell you about the coin. Just go ahead and read and, you know, try to make your own decisions uh, about it. Mm -hmm. And generally, I tell them that in crypto, if you're not okay with losing 50% of whatever you invest in, uh, don't invest because it's, it's just, if not one of the most volatile asset classes out there. So it makes a lot of news when the number goes up, but the number can also go down pretty fast. I usually say 100%. I'm like, only invest what you're willing to like 100% lose. <laughs> But 15% yeah. is maybe more realistic, but I, yeah, I agree with you. You have to be, it is a very risky asset class still and very volatile. So, um, and uh, I think, yeah, meme, meme stocks, coins, all this Dogecoin, I just could rant about that for hours. I think it's a lot of nonsense, but anyways, it takes a lot of airspace. Um, yeah, it's like, is it nonsense if you get rich out of it, right? That's the, the flip side of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, if you're that person who got out at the right time, great. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't. And you really have to, I mean, if you're going to do that, you that's, I mean, you become a day trader, basically. You have to be on that all day, every day because of how quickly it moves. So I do think that, you know, if you're just someone who is investing really as a kind of side investment and that's not your primary day-to-day, -day, I would stay away from that kind of super volatile uh, meme coins and things like that. Anyways, that's my view, uh, but I'm a little risk averse. So <laughs> I, just no, I think it's hundred percent right. It's exactly like you said, like, uh, you know, people don't take profits, they over leverage and they don't have stop loss. And if you try to trade and you don't do that, then you're just going to get burned at some point. Exactly. Um, so I guess anything else before uh, we wrap things up that we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think to me, just wanted to mention, like I was saying before, you know, if you have family, friends, parents, people that you want to try to get into crypto, um, one of the coolest things that you can do right now is get them set up with a wallet and then just buy an NFT of something you like to watch and just send it to them. And then they're going to be, oh, this is nice. I can, it's a nice little JPEG. And then you explain to them about it and then they start getting their, their crypto journey. Is that, have you um, personally witnessed that or? Yeah, I did that as Christmas present for my parents. My parents, you, oh, you cool. met them. They are big into art, so I just gave them. Well, this is the newest, most modern art out there. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I always like to ask each guest what um, before we sign off anything that they're listening, reading, or watching right now that they recommend um, readers or listeners to to check out. 
Yeah. So to me, like you know, my guilty pleasures are usually uh, fantasy slash medieval series mm-hmm. on, on Netflix and other providers. Um, so I'm watching now The Last Kingdom, um, which is about England overrun by the Vikings and trying to fight back. Um, and it's a pretty cool series, not at all historically accurate, uh, but a very entertaining series. So I definitely recommend that. It's definitely been on my list. Um but I haven't sat down and actually checked it out. So maybe I'll, now I'll actually watch it. But yeah, I've, I've seen that. Um, it, it definitely, Netflix also recommends that one to me a lot. <laughs> comes up with recommendations. Um, for me, I've been recently reading a book um, called Titan, and it's about uh, John D. Rockefeller and um, basically his whole history from you know when he was born and grew up and to when he started Standard Oil. Um, and so I'm still not done with it. It's quite a long read, but uh, what's fascinating is, um, and I'll actually probably do a whole post about this, is the start of the oil industry back in the late 1800s, to me, feels very parallel to what's happening in crypto right now. There was a lot of you know, really high highs and low lows, and pe- some people made a lot of money, some people lost a lot of money. There was a lot of schemes. Um, and there was a lot of really fast change in the industry. So I think it's kind of fascinating how that's, you know, kind of mirrored, I think, what we're living through right now um, in crypto. Um, so with that, I guess we'll end. Thank you, Andre, for uh, coming on. And for listeners, um, if you could subscribe, if you want to hear more podcasts and rate and review, that would be uh, really appreciated. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you.